Many of you may have heard about the averted tragedy in uh, Marymount school system with a potential shooting this week. We just want to call and thank God for his protection and also continued confusion of the path of evil and a resistance of evil, whether it shows up inside us or anyone else. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for saving lives. We thank you that you came to bring life and life more abundant. Yet there is an enemy that comes to kill and destroy, Father, and we thank you that you come against him. And God, we ask that you would teach us how to walk in your kingdom, how to pray and depend on you, Father, to not take any day for granted. Teach us the number of days that we might be wise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series on the book of Matthew, where Matthew, uh, an ancient historian and Roman tax collector and Jewish follower of Jesus, is giving a case for why Jesus is the Messiah with the evidence. So we've gotten to a section of our golf course where he is relating Jesus to being better than Moses. He, like Moses, both tried to be killed when they were young. Both escaped out of Egypt, just like happened in 1500 B.C. They both have an encounter with God in a water feature we're going to see next week. But he's specifically been telling us in the chapters we've read so far, one and two, that ancient documents that we have found, archaeologists have found, 700 B.C., 300 B.C., 200 B.C., made specific predictions. And those scriptures testified to exactly what Jesus did, saying, someone like this will be the master. Someone like this will be God on earth. Somebody like this will be the Messiah. Then today he's going to say, an ancient prediction by Isaiah from 800 B.C. said that before Jesus comes, there will be a trailblazer. And that trailblazer will speak of him as the Messiah and the Master. And we're going to see today it's exactly what John the Baptist does. And then he's going to add that up next week when God himself will look from heaven and say, That's my son, whom I love and am well pleased. All of this is building a case for why you can believe Jesus is not just some religious leader, but the one predicted and sent by God. But if Jesus is the master, and if Jesus is God, then why is it that when I listen to my prayers, and I really listen to the attitude of my heart, I act like I'm the master? God, you're here to help fulfill my comfort and my agenda. It's almost like we treat God like he's our caddy. We're the master. Your job is to kind of help me get where I need to go and do what I need to do. Do you treat God like he's your caddy? I do. Or do you recognize if he's the master, I'm here to join him in what he's doing? See, John the Baptist is going to play the role of a great caddy. And a great caddy prepares the master for his work. But he also prepares the watchers to receive. And John is going to recognize he is here to caddy for the master, to prepare him for the work he's going to do. And to prepare all the people who are watching to receive that great message. Two ways he does that. I was reading an interview with Tiger Woods about what makes a great professional caddy. And I was shocked that his main criteria was a trusted relationship. A great partnership. A collaborative experience. He says sometimes the master doesn't even know that particular hole as well as the caddy. The caddy brings some expertise to that particular hole, and they speak up and they collaborate together. But the trusted relationship is what makes it work. 
And the Bible says that's what God wants from all of us. He wants to have a collaborative, trusting relationship with us. He's the master, we're the caddy, but we're doing things together. So two ways, because I think the way John plays the caddy is what you and I are called to be, to play an important role as God's purpose flows through our life. So great caddy points to the master with two questions. Number one, hey guys, have you hit par? And number two, are you sure you're on God's team? Because there's a lot of religious, self-righteous, angry leaders who say they're on God's team. Are they really? So start with, have you hit par? Chapter 3 begins by saying, John the Baptist, in those days, John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, wilderness is not like our wilderness with, with you know, deer and with uh, woods and things like that. Wilderness in Israel is barren rock. I'll show you some video in a little bit. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's hundreds, if not dozens of miles from anywhere. And in this place, he brings a message, which simply is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when you see the word Baptist and you see the word repent, you think the word's got to be five syllables. Repent, right? He's a Baptist. Well, the word Baptist literally means he's a baptizer because he baptizes people. And we don't see him yelling or screaming. He just says, repent. It's the word metanoia. Meta, to change. Noia, our, our thoughts. Almost like the idea where we get metamorphosis. A butterfly had changed from a caterpillar. God wants to change our thoughts. God, I'm really not living up to my standards. I'm not loving the way I should love. I'm not living the way I should live. God, I want to admit that I've thought I'm the master and you're here to serve me. I need to change my thoughts about you and about myself. That's what repent means. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is here. What does that mean? It means the king of the universe, God, is about to come to earth and he wants to reign in you. And when you love, when you live, when you forgive like the king of heaven, that means the king is reigning. We're not just getting to heaven one day. The king can reign in you right now by prioritizing the priorities of the kingdom. That's what he's inviting us to. So get prepared. Admit, man, I need to repent. I need to change my thinking. I have thought it's all about me. It's really all about God. I've, I've thought that, I, that I'm not that, that I've kind of could do, live however I wanted. But man, I need to change my mind and live the way God wants me to. Then he goes on. So he says, you know, repent. Then he says, this is exactly what Isaiah told us at 800 B.C. This is the exact prediction that one would come, right? So this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah said, 700 years B.C. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness tells us who and tells us where. Of all the places in the world, he's going to be in the wilderness. He's going to say, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now notice, he says, prepare the way of the Lord. John is saying, Matthew is saying what Isaiah is saying. This is not just a leader. This is not just a religious person. This is the way of the Lord. God is here. The king of the universe is here. And in those days, whenever a king was coming down, notice the word prepare here. Prepare was to fill in holes. So if the king was coming up over the hill, you'd say, hey, king's going to visit our town. We want to make as straight as possible. We don't want the king to have to wander around. You'd say, how do we prepare a way for the king coming over the hill to get to the center of town? So you would dig it up, till it up, remove all the rocks. You want to create a way for the king to as straight as possible, make the way straight, get to the center of your town. He's saying the same way the king of heaven is here. I want you to prepare a way to get the center of your heart. I want you to fill in the divots. Now, sometimes you were starting from scratch. Other times it was like the Roman road. Sometimes the king was going to come on an existing road. 
See this? This is an ancient road, and it also looks a lot like the roads in Cincinnati. <laughs> Giant, huge potholes and problems, right? Well, often that'd be the case. It's like the king's coming. You fill in the gaps. You, fill in, you remove any obstacles so the king can get to the center. Does that mean you, you, you clean up your life for God? God's going to clean up your life for you. But you create a path for the king to come so he can reign. You remove obstacles. You fill in the gaps. That's the idea here. So, John is saying prepare. Prepare for the king to come and reign in you. And in doing so, John looks crazy. I mean, John's like the ultimate hipster. Let me show you what he looks like here. It says, now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. And the only thing he ate out in the wilderness, because there's nothing there, is locusts. Ripped off the legs, took off the wings. Which was considered kosher in the Levitical code. And they still, some people even today eat those things dipped in honey. Ew. Anyway, he's eating locusts and he's eating wild honey because bees are out there in the wilderness. So he's a wild guy. And when he's out there, it says Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan River came out to see him. So why does he choose this place of all the places in Israel he could go? Many scholars believe he's just north of the Dead Sea on the Jordan River. And though he's surrounded by wilderness, it's a place where there's some vegetation around the river and probably the exact location that Joshua crossed the Jordan River thousands of years ago. Now, if that's the case, then this has incredible significant meaning. In the same way the people went from a wilderness experience to stepping into God's promised land, he's saying this is your moment to do what your ancestors did, to turn from the wilderness life, the disobedient life, that we didn't trust God life, to stepping into the I'm going to trust God life. It also would mean there would be giant stones right around this location where Joshua had set up 12 stones from a miracle done way back, you know, 1200 B.C., when God parted the Jordan River and told him to bring stones out to remember this miracle. Keep that in mind in a moment. So he's got people coming out from dozens of miles and not hundreds of miles to this location. And what do they do? They're baptized by him by confessing of their sins. Now, baptism simply means immersion, to be dipped into the water. So he dips them in the Jordan, and they confess their sins. That sounds very religious, confess your sins. The word confess literally means to joyfully agree sins that I miss the mark. Yeah, I'm not loving people the way I need to love. I'm being angry when I don't want to be angry. I'm being selfish when I'm starting to be selfish. So what would make someone joyfully agree that they've missed the mark? Well, Mark... Luke and John, three other biographies of Jesus' life, they say that he also says, because when you agree with God that you've not hit par and you've not lived your life the way you should, it's remission of sin time. God wipes it away. Imagine every time something you feel guilty about or shameful about, you bring it out and agree with God, he wipes it clean. Well, I might want to bring out some of my dirty laundry if I know it's going to get cleaned every day. God, lots of dirty laundry. Clean this stuff up. I'm tired of having this back in the back seat of my life. You can joyfully agree if you know God's going to clean it. Now, John the Baptist is really innovative in this baptism. There's a lots of Jewish baptisms in those days. The Jews usually used a mikvah. This is the oldest mikvah ever found. And there was a group of people called the Essenes, and they were so committed to live a spiritual life, they were baptizing each other seven times a day, same person. Oh, I didn't try hard enough. You go into the water. I commit. I'm going to really try, really try, really try. You come out. I'm going to walk in the kingdom. Oh, had a bad day. Had a bad thought. I'm going to really, really try, really try. They're in and out of the mikvahs. In synagogue, 
It was just like a giant bathtub. And in front of a synagogue or the temple, you would often have mikvahs. And if you were a Gentile, not a follower of Yahweh, not Jewish, and you wanted to follow Yahweh, you would come to a mikvah and you would be dipped in and come out to say, I'm changing from the gods I worshipped to I want to be a child of the God of Yahweh. But John the Baptist does something unique. It's not really the Essene way. It's not really the Jewish way. It's a one-time baptism where he's really saying, I want you to prepare for the king to come reign in you, and I want you to do it in a location in the world that you know is a wilderness to promise experience. So here's what the Jordan River looks like. Looks a lot like the Little Miami, actually. It's not a huge river. So imagine tens of thousands of people coming here to say, I want the king to reign in me. I want to live an even more significant life than I'm living. And you go into the water, and we practice what's called believer baptism, which is after Jesus died. It became an idea of you buried. You go under the water. Your sins are, for, are buried with Jesus. Everything's forgiven. You come up out of the water. You have a new life in Christ. That's what baptism is. And so people's lives were being changed and committing to the king reigning in this place. You know, at church, we get a chance to baptize people all the time. In fact, I was talking to my, my buddy, Matt Dixon, and I asked him to share his story, kind of how he came to know Jesus here with questions and with doubts and kind of that whole experience and how he went from this place that used to be a golf course to becoming a church and how he got baptized in his son. Let's hear his story together. Hi, I'm Matt Dixon. I came to Christ here at Horizon 13 years ago. Before this was Horizon, a lot of people know this was a golf course also. It was the old Indian Valley golf course. And we had some very improbable events happen here to our family. Uh, my Aunt Ruthie and my Uncle Jim would bring us here to this, off, this golf course quite often, teach us the game, and they were very close with us. They were almost surrogate parents in a way. They were um, close with us because they didn't have children, and after our parents' divorce, they essentially helped fill a role. They were a very safe place at that time, was to be with them. My Uncle Jim and Aunt Ruth uh, passed away in 91 and in 2007. And then I was mostly a CEO or Christmas Easter only attendee at church. Uh, my wife was a Christian. Um, and I decided one Christmas service in 2010 that I would begin to ask some questions. So we tried to look for a new church um, that had a great kids program because that was something that we couldn't really find was a great children's program. And we checked out Horizon um, from a business colleague, my friend Shelly told us about her new church that was opening up in Newtown that had a two-service design and a great children's program. So we came, coincidentally, what was the very first Sunday that Horizon was open to the public. As we arrived, Kelly took the kids back to East Station. I grabbed a cup of coffee, headed to the sanctuary, and I was met by a greeter who shared the same name as my Aunt Ruthie. I thought, what the heck, that's, that's quite a coincidence. Uh, we enjoyed the service. Uh, our kids enjoyed the, the children's program, so we decided to come back. We came back the next week, kind of the same routine. Kelly took the kids to E-Station. I headed to the sanctuary. I didn't see Ruthie. I saw another greeter, and it turns out his name was Jim. I thought, what are the odds of this? So that led me to joining a men's group with Jim, 
and they allowed me to ask questions. So I read a book from Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel, who were doubters, who had uh, some questions. And they actually set out to prove that Jesus was just a man. But in fact, after extensive research for years, they did come to believe that he was the Son of God. So between the men's group and some of the books that I read, um, it was clear that I came to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I was baptized here, as was my son this past year. Well, do you believe in God the Father, the maker of heavens and earth? I do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ who died for you and lives in you? I do. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit who indwells you and it's his fruit that comes out of your life? I do. We baptize you now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One one thousand. Oh, two one thousand. <laughs> Yeah, if I hold you under too long, you don't want to hug me right away. See, that's what I have with Jake. <laughs> so really, what is baptism? It's saying, listen, I don't make par, God, and I need your help. I, I think I can run my life better than you. I've thought you're the, you're the caddy and I'm the master. But God, I want to admit joyfully that I've been wrong and I want to change. Kind of reminds me a little bit when I was a kid, my dad decided to teach us how to play golf. And we weren't much golfers, as I'm still not. Um, but my dad was all right. And so he used to work at a fun like. Uh, golf course area uh, and so he brings us down there and he's trying to explain this par three golf course we're on and what the different you know what the different you know sticks do or poles do we didn't know what they were even called at the time and so he's explaining that you drive up with a driver and as he's explaining kind of how to play golf my brother who's about two years younger than me he's like dad none of that matters we're experts on golf we've never played so my brother takes a tee, I'll never forget, I was there, he puts a tee in, in the tee box, puts the ball on there, and instead of using a driver, he pulls out a putter. He says, all you got to do is swing hard. And I kid you not, I watched, he, he reached up with that putter, he reached back, and he hit that thing straight down the fairway, right onto the green. And now he's, he's close enough to, we, we're jaw dropped, right? Brother's never played before. Then, just to be a smart aleck, he pulls out the driver, and he puts it in like two or three hits right on the golfing. He gets in there and just kind of hits this thing. And sure enough, he sinks that thing. I'll take two. Oh, I got it. All right. And so then, you know, my dad's like, well, that, okay, you got lucky. No, no, Dad. I know how to play golf better than you. Well, then I get up there. And the reason we we're playing golf that day is because I've been to a garage sale. <laughs> and I had gotten this golf club that came with a wing nut. And I thought this was awesome. You could take the wing nut off, and you could turn this from a six iron to a nine iron to a three iron. It was like all your irons in one. You turn this thing where you want, crank it in there, got a three iron, oh, I got a nine iron. And it's like, this is, no, this is not going to be helpful. So we had a hilarious time. We played, and I tell you, except for my brother hitting par in the first one, we did not hit par the rest of the day. My dad was patient with us. My dad adapted to us. But it's kind of like how we live life. God, I know better how to play the game of life that you created. And God's like, no, you don't. You don't know what you're doing. I'm going to join you where you're at because I want to help you find the way to live. Have you hit par? The second question is, are you on God's team? Wearing a golf shirt and walking on a golf course does not make you a golfer. Right? And many of us have been turned off by religious leaders who claim to be Christians because they went to church and they read the Bible and they did religious things and they were the farthest thing from what God or Jesus would describe as his follower. 
And John's going to get very, very harsh on the judgmental religious leaders and say, you think you're on God's team? You're not even on God's team. And he's talking to like the most religious people in the day called the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like the conservatives of the day. They very conservatively took all the rules and all the regulations, all about do, 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 don't, 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 don't. Now, the Pharisees were the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in, in resurrection. And they said, well, spirituality is kind of important. And he's going to say, both of you have done such a horrible job representing God. You're not even on God's team. Here's how it says it. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, John, not a great way to win friends and influence people. And look at how he almost presumes they know something. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? As if you've heard this before. You should know better. He doesn't talk to the regular people like that. But man, he tells them to repent, but he doesn't use this kind of language. You brood of vipers against the religious leader. You should be bearing fruit, living your life worthy of repentance. If you really repented, if you really knew God was God and you were humble, you would be living differently. And then he says to them, do not think you can say to yourselves, we are children of Abraham. We're Jewish. We go to church. We have religious things. We do religious uh, activities. Do not think that makes you a child of God. Because you have Abraham as your father. Just because you're Jewish, like I'm Norwegian, suddenly that would suddenly make you a child of God. No. I tell you this, God is able to rise up, raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And if he's speaking in Hebrew, there's actually a little play on words here, because the word children is aben, and the word stones is ben. God can make an aben out of a ben. And he's probably pointing to the very stones that Joshua pulled out as a reminder of a moment that people turned away from their old ways and went into the promised land. God is saying to these religious leaders, you pretend you represent God, you're not even on God's team. These rocks are more like God than you are. And then he gets harsher. He says, the axe of God is laid at the root of the tree of the poor leadership you've had as leaders. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit, not this self-righteous judgmental fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. Now, he's using images here that he presumes they know. It's almost like a glossary of images you might find in the Old Testament. Here's a couple of them. In the book of Isaiah, God is talking about religious leaders who've done such a poor job of representing him. He says, they, the leaders, trust in empty words and they speak lies. They hatch viper's eggs. What comes out of their mouth, they say they're from me, but it's, it's it just, they speak poisonous, deceptful words, deceitful words. Viper's eggs. And the Lord saw what his leaders were doing and it displeased him. That there was no justice. Then it goes on to say he realized there was no intercessor, somebody who could really represent him. It goes on to say he's going to send a Messiah to accurately represent Jesus, to accurately represent God, and to be that intercessor of his people need. In Jeremiah, he's, he's equally clear and harsh. He says, woe, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You, the spiritual leaders, have scattered my flock. I'm going to tend to you for the evil you're doing. I'm coming down to hold you to account. Then he says, I 
will gather the remnant of my flock. I'm going to personally come down and be their shepherd. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. That's exactly what Jesus is doing, fulfilling these promises. He's the good shepherd come from heaven to confront the leaders and to gather the sheep. And the tree is almost always a metaphor of your kingdom or your stewardship. And the axe is almost a sign that you have done a, been a poor steward of the leadership God's given you and God's going to hold you accountable. One example in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom represents a tree. And he's a poor leader. He doesn't care for his people. So what happens? Behold, he has a dream. In the middle of the dream on earth, there was a watcher, a holy one, a spiritual being. Coming down from heaven, he cried out, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. We're going to chop down selfish leaders, self-righteous leaders who don't represent God or steward their kingdom well. So that, look at that, so that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of man. You have the idea of kingdom, you have axes and chopping. All this seems to be what's in John the Baptist's head. So one, are you hitting par these days? I'm not. Did you know you can joyfully agree and find the washing and cleaning of that? Are you really on God's team? Or have you been turned off by somebody who misrepresented God's team? Maybe you're like, you know what, I do religious things and I do religious activity and I had religious parents, but I'm not sure I've ever joined God's team. God says, welcome. Come caddy with me and let's enjoy life together. A great caddy points people to the master. That's what John's doing for us. That's what God wants us to do with our lives. Secondly, a great caddy knows he's nothing without the master. <laughs> you don't go to the master's tournament and say, yeah, I was at the master's tournament. Oh, really? Where'd you play? I was a caddy. No, I, I went because I'm with the master. I'm nothing without the master. I can't do anything without the master. And there's several things a great caddy knows. Number one, I know my role. I recognize my role is to be the caddy in a trusted relationship with the master. And John has that. John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he, the, one, the master I'm talking about, the person I'm preparing you for, the king that's coming, he's mightier than me. In fact, his sandals, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. That's who's coming. Then he says, I not only know my role, but I know the clubs that the king's going to bring. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. These aren't like random words. These are two specific predictions, hundreds of years we have in advance on scrolls, that God's going to send his Holy Spirit, the book of Joel, when he comes. This grace, this patience, this presence with us. But also in Malachi 3, which is almost identical to Isaiah 40 we've just been reading, it says that when Messiah comes, he's going to come with a purifying fire. He's going to bring fire to destroy evil. As we're going to see, because of kind of the area he grew up in, John the Baptist is kind of expecting God to come and fire and brimstone on everybody that disagrees with him. He's going to find that God does judge evil. But God through Jesus is coming with a lot of grace and a lot of patience and a lot of love. As I mentioned when we went through the Old Testament, often a prophet sees prophecy like two mountaintops. But from their vantage point, they just see the two mountaintops simultaneously. He can see there's going to be a Holy Spirit moment and a fire moment of judgment. But he sees them at the same time. What he doesn't realize is God's coming through Jesus to offer lots and lots of grace and love and forgiveness. It's at the second coming, he will come and judge evil. But God is so patient, he wants to give people plenty of time to discover they haven't hit par. Plenty of time to realize he's the master. So John the Baptist grew up in an area called uh, 
you know, the southern part of Judea near the Essenes. So the Essenes um, actually were in a place called Qumran. And though John wasn't one, he was scattering off from them, he definitely had this idea that, that God's coming this time to judge all people who disagree with him. And his strategy, he gets the right truth, but he gets the wrong timing. So the Essenes who lived here in Qumran, who copied the Dead Sea Scrolls, they believed that God's kingdom would come to destroy the pagans. <coughs> Anyone who disagreed with them, God's going to destroy them if we can just live disciplined enough and obey him truthfully enough. Well, God does want us to obey, and he does want us to be truthful, and he does want us to take the scriptures seriously. But God doesn't hate pagans or people who disagree with him. God loves them. And somehow the religious people lost track of God loves all the people he's made and wants to draw them in. Let me take you to the area of place, uh, the area of Israel that he was actually ministering in, just to show you the train. This is the wilderness. In fact, this right here is one of the very caves that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hundreds of years, these predictions before Jesus existed, found in that cave. This is the area people traveled over this terrain hundreds of miles to get to the Jordan River. You can see the caves on the left and right. All those were places the Bible was copied and hid for hundreds of years until the 1940s when it was found by the Essenes. They got so much right. And John the Baptist certainly was influenced by their thinking. And he certainly spoke truth about God's grace and also God's judgment. But what he missed out was that sitting here in, in the Qumran community, it's easy to say, we got to act together, those people out there, what's wrong with the world? If we could just live God, get away from those people, God will send fire to burn everybody else down. And he sat here. The scenes were very much there during the time of John the Baptist. He probably interacted with him often, talking about what's wrong with the world. And I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time in Qumran if I'm really honest, thinking in my pursuit of good that I'm better than other people. I'm not proud of that. But how often have you sat in Qumran saying, oh, I'll tell you what the problem of the world is, and it's everything except you? Here's one example, although I, I do this all the time. During COVID, I, I love making uh, pretzels and beer cheese. So I thought it would be fun. So I went and got some, some round pretzels they have at Walmarts, and I made some beer cheese. We're watching TV at night, and I open up the pretzels, and oh, moldy. I look at the date, two weeks old. Oh, I said, I'll run down there. So I run down to Walmart, got my receipt, got my stuff. Hey, got some moldy pretzels. Just want to swap them out with some other ones. Um, could we do that real quick? Yeah, after I waited in line forever. We get up there. I'm sorry, sir, the computers are down. Well, it's not a big deal, because literally all I'm going to do is swap it for what I have. I'll just give you the receipt. You take the, the moldy pretzels. Um, I'll go get some clean pretzels. Sorry, sorry, I can't do that because the computer's down. And I'm thinking, you almost poisoned me to death with the moldy pretzels. I'm doing you a favor, not suing you. I didn't say that, but that was in my inner voice. I said, okay, well, seriously, I'll just leave you the receipt. And as soon as the computer comes up, you can just check it out and say he got a new one. Sir, I can't do that. The computer's down. Well, how about this? I'll leave it here. I'm just going to grab some pretzels, jump in my car. It's all even. If you do that, you'll be stealing from Walmart. And I'm getting more and more angry. I'm getting more and more self-righteous. Because these people aren't very efficient. This is bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy. This is terrible service, not caring for people. And here I am angry at the pretzel lady because she doesn't care about people the way I care about people. That's not what we all do. We take something that is good, efficiency, caring for people, that we think we're better than other people in one moment at a time, and we judge other people. God is saying, I love 
the Zeus worshipers. <laughs> I love the Gentiles. I've come to gather my sheep. Because we all have that self-righteous problem that the Pharisees and Sadducees had. Which is why we need to recognize that God has both justice and peace. He, he comes with a certain swing. And God's swing includes his justice and it includes his grace. And often we get angry at God for two reasons. Some people say, well, God's, too, God's too mean. A good God shouldn't ever be just. Well, who are you to tell God who he can be? God has the right to be teed off at evil, at injustice, at betrayal, at unfaithfulness. A good God should be teed off at bad things. Other times, we're angry at God because he's teed off. He's given people too much time to swing, too much time to start their game, too much time to repent, too much time to change. So sometimes we're mad because God's too mean and a good God should never be mean. Other times we're mad because God's too patient and needs to be mean quicker. God is a perfect blend of grace and truth. And that first coming, he came with truth, but a whole lot of grace and patience. And that second coming, he's coming with justice. And that may be what's informing John the Baptist here. And he's speaking still to the religious leaders about how God is going to clean up their act. Because he's given them hundreds of years, and they have not been good leaders. He says, his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this is an agricultural metaphor. In order to get the wheat out of the chaff it was in, or the chaff it was in, you had a combination of wheats and weeds. Well, of course God should burn up weeds, right? If, if weeds are evil, we all want God to take care of evil. Burn up the evil. That sounds good. Burn up the evil. But God doesn't want to burn up the evil when it's still attached to the wheat. So this is why Jesus came. Because we don't hit par, we get a lot of weeds in our life. The weeds, not, evil's not just out there, it's in here. So God, through Jesus, made a way to separate the wheat from the weeds. Because I love you, I love who you are, but you're still attached to your weeds. So if you will admit, admit that you don't hit par, admit that you're attached to your weeds, I can separate you from your weeds so I can burn up weeds at the end of time, but not burn you with it. What a deal. In God's justice, he does what should be done, the weeds, and in his love, he draws all, all of us to himself. These are the metaphors he's using. A, a winnowing fan is like a pitchfork in those days. You'd use to kind of pick up the wheat, and you'd bang it up against a threshing board. The winnowing fan, you'd use to scoop it. You'd scoop the different material, and you'd throw it up in the air as you're scooping it out there, so the wind would blow the chaff away, the weeds, and the wheat would fall, and you could separate the wheat from the weeds. That which needed to be burned up from that which was good. And that which was good would be separated on the threshing floor. Now you see you've got a pile of the good stuff and a pile of the bad stuff. Let's burn the bad stuff and let's keep the good stuff. And then you take the good stuff and you put it in a storage barn, a storage area like here at the Herodium. That's what God's saying. I want every single person I made to spend time with me in eternity and at my place. But to do that, I have to separate you from, from the weeds. So how about you? Are you willing to admit you got some weeds in your life? I do. Some self-righteousness like the Pharisees? Are you willing to say, God, I admit I need that and I need you to separate me from my wheat? You have the right to be teed off at evil? But God, I'm still, set, I'm still attached to my evil. I want to let go so you can forgive me. If so, then I, need, I think we need to make a transition. 
in our life, we need to say, I need to move from thinking God's my caddy to I'm his. I need to move from being cad, which is an old English word for being selfish or being rude or thinking it's all about me. I need to move from being cad to being a caddy. God, I thought I could tell you how to rule life and I know how to play the game better than you do, Dad. I've been keeping score, God, and you owe me. Your score's not looking so good at that last hole. But God, I'm going to lay down my scorecard and I'm going to say, God, I need to move from cad to caddy. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to accomplish your purpose. You know better than me. You made me how to live my life. And to do that, we really just need to practice the same things John the Baptist said in this chapter. Was it, how do you move from cad to caddy? I repent. I change my thinking about God, about who's king of my life, me or him. I prepare the way. I'm going to fill in the holes and remove any obstacles that keep him from reigning in me. I'm going to make that path as straight as possible. It's not a long route for God to get to convict me or to change me. I'm going to agree, confess. I'm going to joyfully agree that I missed the mark so I can find that remission of sins. Then I say, God, since you're reigning in here, I can't bear fruit. All I bear is more self-righteousness or judgment. I need you to come reign in me so you'll bear fruit. It's the fruit of your spirit, love and joy and peace and gentle self-control. And then we find that when he reigns in us, we live the life we wanted all along. Move from cad to caddy. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for these harsh and difficult and challenging words from John the Baptist but how it really speaks to what's broken in us. And thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your kingdom. We ask it would reign in us. In Jesus' name, amen.